We are Crossroads Grace Church. Our purpose is to lead people to discover Jesus and follow Him fully. This week's message is taught by our teaching pastor, Brian Hunt. From wherever you're listening, we hope that you are challenged and encouraged by this week's message. Hey, everybody! Hey, happy Easter to you! Wherever you might be joining us from, a living room, a kitchen, uh, on your way to work or in the middle of work, man, thank you for joining us at, for Easter here at Crossroads. A couple of special shout-outs to Estella down in Orange County. Stella! Man, so glad that you're here. The Stanley family, thank you for joining us. And just for all the people throughout this entire day that have joined us, thank you for making Crossroads part of your Easter tradition. Uh, if I didn't introduce myself earlier, my name is Pastor Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads and uh, want to make sure that you know that our hosts are available, our chat hosts are available to help you with one in particular thing, and that is to help you discover Jesus and follow him fully. That is our mission here at Crossroads. And so myself, our staff, our entire church is dedicated to that. And those chat hosts want to help you any way you can, through any way they can throughout this sermon today and this series, the this, this service today. So thank you again for joining joining us here today at Crossroads. And listen, can we just say that the world's a little different? Uh, it's, it's a little odd right now. Nobody could have thought 30 days ago that this is where we would be at. But right now, this is where we're at. And it can seem a little gray. It can seem a little dark and a little confusing. Not sure what's happening and, and with our health and with our jobs and all the things that are uncertain. But what I love to be able to do is in, in the middle of all the gray and all the confusion, we can find a lot of bright lights that's there. And there's so many good things that are happening from people starting uh, happy birthday trains in front of people's houses to be able to tell them happy birthday, which I think, I hope that sticks, by the way, after this is all over, uh, to just connecting with people you haven't connected with in a really long time, uh, family calls, Zoom calls, people know how to Zoom now. How cool is that? And so a lot of good things have come out of it. Uh, and so one cool thing that I learned about just a couple of services ago was that a little boy of the name of Graham actually accepted Jesus today with his family in his house and they were able to take communion together. So, oh my goodness, congratulations, little buddy. But God is doing great things despite all the craziness that's around us because he's still in control. He's still on his throne. And it's so important for us to remember that. Uh, but as I said, things are a little bit different, but Easter is the same. Easter is always remembering what Jesus has done. And that's why we come together around this time to remember him. Now, my, just to get you to know me a little bit, my, my family, I grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota. I was one of three boys to my mom and dad, whose names was Peggy and Phil, and then they named us three B names. So that's right, P-P-B-B-B. And our names were Brian, that's me, uh, Bradley, and Brandon. So we had three Bs, and really the thing was is that when we, were around, when we were around town or around family or even just around friends, we were known as the Hunt Boys. We were always a package deal, no matter where we went, all three of us were usually together. Even now when we go home, people will ask, hey, what's going on with the three Hunt Boys. We were the three, the three amigos. We were always together. Uh, but that's a good thing. But there are also some bad sides to always being a three. So for instance, uh, you always have to play two on one. You can never play two on two. So it's always two on one, although I am undefeated with all of the Hunt Boy uh, sports that we ever did. So just to let that out there. Uh, other thing is, is that we always had to fight over who had to sit in the middle of the Oldsmobile station wagon. Any Oldsmobile station wagon people out there? I know you're out there because you're just, you squish together and then we had the third row seat that looked backwards. It would make you throw up if you rode back there too long. Uh, but, but three, also, you had the third wheel syndrome that happened. 
But then there was always one thing that stuck out more than more than anything to me is when you got to the bottom of the box of the Lucky Charms and your mom wouldn't let you have the last bowl. You had to split it three ways to be fair. But let's just be honest. Brad always got more marshmallows than I. And I don't think that that was fair. Mom, we have to have some conversations about that. So, so listen, numbers are an interesting thing. For me, it was three growing up and three boys and all of those things. But maybe for you, some different things. And, and gosh, our world is kind of crazy when it comes to numbers. Like at hotels, there is no such thing as a 13th floor because no one wants that superstition in their, in their hotel. I, I swore that my batting average was much lower when I wasn't number five on my uniform. And, and even in church world, there's kind of some crazy stuff that happens with numbers. And I, I got to thinking of my friend uh, of Darren, who has a church in uh, in Kentucky. And he, this one time there's actually a number that popped up on the screen to let a parent know they had to come and get their child. And well, you just have to take a look at what happened. Why? We're a work in progress until the end of our lives, until we become perfected in Christ himself. So in the meantime, here's what Paul's getting at. What does that mean for us in the meantime, as we're running our race, looking to run it well? He says, but one thing I do, does something happen? We have gone off the rails in the children's... <laughs> That's unbelievable. I had to ask because I, I thought it was a bunch of whispers, but it was a bunch of people saying, six, 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 six. <laughs> well, I'm going to move our Tuesday meetings to Monday. We got some conversations to have. I feel bad for the parent who got that number. I hope that wasn't a first-time guest. <laughs> Checking in their kid. Here. Your number will be on the screen if we need you. <laughs> it's a pretty good sign. You're probably going to need me. <laughs> oh, no, that kid's acting up. Like, you get that number. That kid's... I'm sorry. That, per- that parent, if the spouse of that parent's still here, I'm sorry. That... There's... We don't even have that many kids back there. How? I have so many questions. Huh. All right. <laughs> Why is it still up there? <laughs> oh, this is unbelievable. Huh. Oh. Man, I, I hope that parent sticks around. I need to personally apologize. Like, Isn't that just crazy what he had to go through? I don't know how I would handle that. You know, he handled it so well. But but people kind of go nuts when it comes to numbers and different things that are around numbers. And even, guys, we know about this. Are we not just counting down the days like people that are in prison until our quarantine is over? I mean, some of you probably have charts for it out there. So, so numbers are a thing. 
But, but what about numbers in the Bible? Is there any significance to numbers in the Bible at all? I mean, there's a book of the Bible called Numbers, so I'm thinking that's probably something. But what about the actual numbers themselves? Well, let's take, for instance, the number seven. Uh, now, the number seven is, is, is throughout the Bible, and it's really known for this idea of creation or completion. Um, its idea of rest is associated with it. And we see it in the book of Genesis when God creates the world in seven days, and then at the end of that seventh day, he rests. So there's completion, there's rest when it comes to the number seven. How about this number, the number 40? You see this 146 times in the Bible. Most of the time when you see it, you see it when it's associated with trial or challenge. Some examples of that would be that in, when Noah, when Noah was on the ark, 40 days, 40 nights of rain, that's how long they were on the ark. Moses is a great example, though. Moses actually, he lived in Egypt for 40 years before he fled to Midian, where he lived for another 40 years. Then he went back to Egypt to let my people go. And then he was in the, the wilderness with the, with the people of God for another 40 years. So 40 years in Moses were totally connected. Talk about challenge and talk about trial. That's what he experienced. So seven and 40, those are some examples. But what about this number right here? How about the number three? What significance is there in the number three? Well, you don't have to look very far in the Bible to see how many times the number three seems to come up in Scripture. To begin with, let me just explain that the number three in Greek is the word shalosh. Shalosh. And it actually means harmony, new life, and completeness. Harmony, new life, and completeness. 467 times in the Bible, you will see the number three used, this shalosh. Some examples of it would be the Trinity. Uh, God is, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's three. There's completeness. There's unity there. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days until he had a new life when he was puked up on the side of a shore, right? That's some new life there. So we see that the number three is everywhere. But what about Easter? What, is, what does the number three have to do with the Easter story? Now, before we dive in, I just want to make one thing clear as we start to talk about this number three. And I want you to know that the number is not the most important thing. See, this isn't about numerology. It's about Christology. It's about Jesus. And it's only about Jesus. It's about what he did for us at this Easter and at this time that is the most important thing. It's not about numbers. It's about Jesus. But we also can't ignore that the number three is a powerful reminder of the shalosh, the completeness, the new life that we see in Jesus at Easter. So there's all kinds of threes that are associated with him. It, just even around the Easter story, for example, uh, Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays there with three of his friends, Peter, James and John. He actually prays three times to God. He pleads with God so that he would, might take this cup from him so he doesn't have to face the cross. Uh, when he's crucified on the cross, it was at the third hour uh, and he dies on the ninth hour, which would have been three o'clock p.m. And there were three hours of darkness that covered the land while Jesus was hanging on the cross. Talk about a ton of threes. But the greatest three in the Bible is why we're here today. It is when Jesus was in that tomb for three days. So let me make sure we understand where we've been so far. Jesus has already been beaten and flogged within an inch of his life. He's had a crown of thorns thrust onto his head. He's been forced to carry his cross to the place where he would be executed. And then three nails were placed into his body. There were two that were placed in his wrist and one at his ankles to fix him to the cross itself. 
Then a spear is run up underneath his rib cage to prove that he was dead. He was taken down and then he was placed in a tomb uh, that was then, he was wrapped in garments. He was, it was, it was placed in a tomb. They then sealed the tomb. Roman guards were on the outside of the tomb. All of that had taken place, but now we're in this moment of waiting because he was in that tomb because he was dead. Jesus had died and now we wait. The, for three days, the entire world waited. And, and we know that a lot can happen in three days. Isn't it true? I mean, in three days, we went from being able to watch the Golden State Warriors in their brand new arena to barely being able to be in the same room with our family if it was too big. You know what I mean? Like we went from this idea that we were able to work out in gyms and now we're doing push-ups on top of the roof for crying out loud. Three, in three days, we went from not caring at all how the, the quantity of TP that somebody has in their house. And now we are highly concerned about how much toilet paper another person has in their house. Three days, a lot happens. But there's also some serious things that happen too, isn't there? In three days, you can go from having the best job you've ever had to maybe not having a job. In three days, you can go from being happily married to on the road to divorce. A lot of things can happen in three days. A lot can happen. But what hung in the balance of those 72 hours as Jesus was in that tomb was way more important than when social distancing is going to end. What was at stake was whether or not what this rabbi from Nazareth had said over the past three years was actually true. Because by the age of 33, Jesus had said some profoundly powerful things if in fact they were true. Let me just give you a few examples of that. Jesus actually said while he was on this earth, while he was in his ministry, that he was the source of all eternal life he was speaking to a woman by a well when she was drawing water. And he said this to her in John chapter four. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never, ever thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he says he has the source of eternal life. He also actually healed people and said he had the ability to heal people. He healed a crippled man by the pool in John chapter five, verse eight. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. So he said he could cure people. He also said that he could forgive sins, though. Another example of this that we see in the Bible is actually Matthew 9, 2. It says, Jesus looked at his faith and said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this man that he's speaking to was lowered through the roof of a house as Jesus was teaching a Bible study. And he was lowered through the roof because he couldn't walk. He was lame. And so what Jesus does is he forgives his sins and then he heals him. So Jesus says that he could forgive sins. He also said that he was the only way to God. We read this very clearly in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. But then Jesus actually went so far as to say that he was God, right? And, and amongst this whole Easter story, when he was about ready to get crucified, he was speaking to Pilate and Pilate asked him if in fact he was what was the Jews called the king of the Jews, or in other words, the Messiah that had come to save the world from their sin. And in response to Pilate's question, Jesus said this in Luke, he says, you have said so. In other words, Jesus says, yes, you are right. You have said what is true. So even in this whole tomb situation, though, Jesus has spoke to that. This whole idea of being in the tomb and being raised from the dead, he spoke to that also in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. 
It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. He even talks about that. Jesus said some amazing things in his life, but all of those could be just words. And now all of those things that he says hangs in the balance while these three days pass. Was it true? Was he in fact God? Did they follow a hoax? What does it mean if he's still in the tomb on day four? 72 hours, 4,320 minutes, 259,200 seconds, three days. That's how long the world waited to have those questions answered. And and maybe you're here today and you've joined this service and uh, you've got questions too about Jesus. Maybe you've heard about Jesus, but you're still not sure about this whole thing. You might have used to believe, but then you went to college or you started to date someone or you hung around some different friends that began to have you question things. Maybe you want to believe, but you're not sure what your family would think. Maybe there's a deep part of you that needs a little bit more proof before you'll step across that line. And if that's you here today, man, I'm so glad that you're here. God loves your questions and your curiosity. In fact, you may even want to consider being part of the next series that's coming up. It's called Asking for a Friend. You'll find more about it at the end of service. But this might be the exact thing that you need. But how have you come in this Easter? How have you come here today? And and no matter what you're wrestling with is how it comes with Jesus, we can all agree on this, at least. We can all agree on this, believer or non-believer alike. We all know that something isn't right. We we know that this world is broken and it's it's in need of fixing. Goodness gracious, the last few weeks have showed us that, have they not? That the world that we live in is broken It doesn't take too long to scroll through your social media feeds to see the heartache and the stress in our lives. We we don't need to look at the news very long to see racism and sexism and viruses and, and evil that is all around us. But guess what? You don't even need the news to tell you that. You can look inside yourself and know that there is something that is wrong because we all feel confused and lonely, fearful. There's this tension that we feel on, the, on our daily basis in our life. And what's crazy is that even if we seem to have everything together, like if you're there today and you know that you have a great family and a job and money and everything that you have and friends that you'd ever even want, you still know deep down in your quieter moments that you long for something more. And, and whether we want to admit it or not, What it all boils down to is what happens as we wait on the outside of that tomb for those three days. Because if what happened inside that tomb is true, it will affect the rest of everything on the outside of the tomb in your life and my life. It will determine what we do with the mess that is all around us. And as I sit back and I look at this Easter story and I look at the, the mess in our world, I really believe that there are three ways that we could handle this. Three ways that we could look at the mess in our world and try to deal with it. The mess inside of us and the mess inside of the world around us. Three ways. 
that we can look at it. And I believe I'd like to look at those three today. And the first is this, is that we could believe that life is hopeless. Number one, we could believe that life is hopeless. We could look at our life and say that, man, we're just too far gone, too far gone. That, that after God created this perfect world, we messed everything up. And so he turned his back on us and we're donezo. I mean, let's just be honest. The chaos that we see around us is not because of an overabundance of good things that are happening. It's because there's a lot of bad things that are happening, a huge amount of bad things that are all around us. And all that bad stuff actually has a name for it. God would call it sin. And sin is what has separated us from God. And not just a separation like we give our kids when we're at homeschool and we tell them to go take a time out. No, 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 far greater than that. We're talking about an eternal forever, forever, forever. Because God is a perfect God. And only things that are perfect and blameless can be around him. So anything that is not has to be pushed away. Which obviously makes, number one, an obvious choice. That maybe we're just too far gone. We are too bad. That there's no hope. And so when we die, when the lights go out and the batteries fade and it all fades away, that we just kind of are done. There is no hope. It's kind of like I look like in May when I look at where my Reds are at and my Cincinnati Reds, they're in the baseball standings. And I realize that by May, we're probably out of the playoffs, like that side of hopelessness. But listen, there's hope this year because COVID gave us a delayed start to the season, which means that my Reds are still tied for first. Go Reds. Right. So there's a there's a there's a silver lining in this whole thing. But but you understand what I mean, because if we feel like we're too far gone, then maybe we should just give up. We should just bail on it. We should just keep doing what we're doing as long as we possibly can. Because if there's no hope, if God has turned his back on us, then anything that we try to say to him or cry out to him will hit a glass ceiling in the heavens. So what is the point? Where is the hope? And guys, that is really the the, the depths of that song we heard earlier, that Demi Lovato song, that, that, that she's crying out to anyone that would hear her and listen to the pain that she's going through. So maybe you feel that way sometime. Maybe you feel like there is no hope. Well, that's number one. But of course, there is a second way that we can approach the mess that's in our life. And that second way is to look at ourselves to, follow, to, to, to solve the sin and the evil that exists in our life. And I would say just kind of like this, that maybe I can fix my life. That there's no hope, maybe that's not what I believe, but maybe I can fix my life. That maybe what my dad and mom told me growing up was true, that you made the mess, you clean it up. Anybody ever heard that before? You might've said that this morning to your kids. That, that maybe all is not hopeless if I can put my hope in myself. That, that if I can do enough stuff to outweigh the bad stuff that I've done, that at very least I could leave on a high note when this, when this life is over, like George Costanza and walk out of the meeting on a high note, that maybe if I recite the right prayers, go to the right school, have the right parents, give to the right charities, if I do that, then maybe somehow I can rectify all the wrong things that I've done. And if enough people do that in the world, you might think, then maybe the world will go back on its axis. That if we just do enough good things, the world will be better. And, and you might not have known this, but this is exactly how nearly every other world religion looks at this problem that we're in right now. For instance, Buddhists, they believe that to, pro to solve the problem of evil and sin in our world, you go by the four noble truths and the eightfold path. But that has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with you and how you live your life. 
What about Hindus? They believe in reincarnation, which means that we have to do enough stuff right the right way in order for us to get out of this cycle of reincarnation. Muslims, they believe in the five pillars and believe that you are required to do more good than bad in order to receive the proper eternal life. Sikhs, they don't believe in an afterlife like heaven or hell, but they believe in what they say is heaven can be experienced by being in tune with God while we're still alive, which means that you have to do a bunch of good things to stay in tune with God. Wiccans, they don't believe in gods or goddesses. They believe, they believe that they don't have to appease them. They believe in reincarnation, that you have to continue to do things over and over until you get things right. It's all about you. So the second way of looking at stuff in our world sure seems like it makes a lot of sense to people, doesn't it? Especially in our world today. So for instance, do you know what the fastest growing market in the business world is right now? It's, it's actually, it's got three letters. It's D-I-Y. D-I-Y. Do you know what that, that stands for? D-I-Y stands for do it yourself. Do it yourself. Fastest growing market is the DIY market and it's everywhere. There's a DIY mentality. I'll explain how much this has infiltrated our society. Take Home Depot, for instance. Back in 2019, it actually changed its slogan from more savings, more doing to this new one that says how doers get more done. Quickly after that, Lowe's changed theirs in January of this year and they changed it to do it right for less. Now, why do these massive companies do that? Why do these massive companies do that? Because the market is shifting towards people that don't want to ask for help to do anything. They want to DIY it. Men, can we just talk man to man for a second? Tell me that you don't look at those orange vests and the blue vests in those stores we just talked about with disdain because you think if you ask for help from them that somehow you're going to lose your man card somehow. Just be honest. You're not going to ask for directions. Why? Because we are DIYers. We will do it ourselves. Ladies, stop laughing right now. I know you're laughing right now and elbowing your husbands and your boyfriends. Uh, Listen, you're not off the hook either because there's this little thing called Pinterest, isn't there? Pinterest, yes. Pinterest is a location where you can post ideas and projects that you've done so that other people can try them for themselves. There is an estimated 84 million users on Pinterest right now. All of them think that they can do what the other person had posted up on there. But I'm not sure if you know that, but not only is Pinterest a household name, but Pinterest fails is also a household name. These are these moments when our DIY plan doesn't really go to plan. I'll give you some examples here today so you can kind of take a look. These are beautiful. These are these are these are cookie monster cookies. They look amazing. This is your shot at it, though. That looks like Cookie Monster got microwaved on the moon. Like, that's terrible. How about the next one here? We got sharks with little bites out of the donuts in there. Oh, that's just cute. How about this? That ain't cute. That's a disaster. That is terrible. How about these? These are kiwis that are covered in chocolate on a stick. That looks great. This That's like diarrhea on a stick. Like, I don't even know what to do with it. That's just terrible. How about this? How about this one over here? The the, the nice little Easter bunny. How could you screw up the Easter bunny? How do you do it? Like that. That's how you screw up the Easter bunny. I'm pretty sure those are olives on top of that head, which I don't know what kind of cake you have olives on, but that's just crazy and messed up. But you you see what I'm having. Now, Now, why does this happen, would you say? 
Is this like a millennial thing where everybody gets a trophy and no one loses and everybody gets a warm cup of milk and a rub on the back so everybody knows that they're okay? Or is it because that we've started to think that the only help we need is from ourselves? Is that why? After all, in the country that we live in, in the U.S. of A., we believe that we are self-made, self-fixed, and self-sufficient, that we could do it. So why would we not believe that we could DIY our sin away? It only makes sense to us, right? But come on, come on. Let's just be honest with each other. Do we really think that if we can't make cookie monster cupcakes, that we can somehow figure out the theological solution to our eternal sin that has separated us from God for all eternity? Man, the honest truth is that when we try that, we only make more of a mess of our lives, not less of a mess. How do I know this? Because I look at the world around us. If you look at the news right now, these are our very best attempts that we have taken to make the world better. But it has only caused us to be more and more messed up. It's just the truth. So we cannot be so naive to think that we can fix our problem of sin ourselves. Something that is already broken cannot all of a sudden turn into something that can fix things that are broken. It just doesn't work that way. So, so if we can't, if, if, if we can't help ourselves and we want to hold on to the fact that there is still hope out there, what do we do? What do we do? There has to be another way. And that is why Easter is so beautiful, because it provides the third way, the third solution to the problem of our sin. And it's simply this, that my life and your life needs a savior. That if we can't fix ourselves and we don't want to live a life that is hopeless, then there's only one other option, that someone else has to save us. Not a broken person, but a perfect person has to be able to save us. And that is exactly what happened on the third day. But in order to fully understand this, we need to look back at our story. We need to look back because what we see is that this third day promise from Jesus was not missed by the religious leaders because the religious leaders hated him. They hated him so much that they murdered him and they got nervous about Jesus. See, they had also heard what Jesus had said about himself and they didn't want any, you know, third day hijinks at all. So what they did is they actually wanted to make sure that they understood exactly what was happening ahead of time. And then after he died, they made some provisions. So Matthew chapter 27, look in verse 62. It says the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be secure under the third day until the third day. So if anyone, if anyone was going to prevent any shenanigans from happening with Jesus's body to give the illusion that he had raised from the dead, it was the Pharisees in Rome. And so they made every possible adjustment for that. They sealed the tomb with a two-ton rock and they sealed it so no one could get in. Then they placed armed Roman guards in front of it. Roman guards in front of it to guard the tomb. That's what they did. And after they did that, there they sat. 
Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day three, ha, <laughs> something happened on day three. Look in chapter 28, starting in verse one. It says, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the 